Welcome to the second series of the Cutting Edge Issues podcast from the Department of International Development at the LSE. These podcasts are recordings from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice lecture series for the academic year 2021-2022. This series of guest lectures is coordinated by me, Duncan Green, Professor in Practice in the Department, and the Professor of Development Studies, James Putzel. Each week in the Cutting Edge series, renowned guest lecturers share their expertise and spark discussion on an exciting range of issues, from the battle over COVID vaccines with Jayati Ghosh, to what's wrong with aid with Claire Short, to the political economy of Parasite, the Oscar-winning movie with Harjun Chang. Since 2020, the series has taken place online, enabling us to host fantastic speakers from around the world and to stream the lectures via this podcast and on YouTube, opening them up to a global audience. I hope you enjoy the lecture. Okay, welcome everybody uh, to the Cutting Edge Issues in Development Thinking and Practice series at the London School of Economics. I'm James Futzel, Professor of Development Studies and one of the co-chairs of this activity on a weekly basis and along with my uh, colleague, Duncan Green, who will be joining us shortly. His apologies for not being here yet. I'm really delighted today to be able to welcome back to the school after, you know, 12, 13 years, uh, Lise Grand, um, who's a major figure in international humanitarian work. You know, I, I met Lise uh, way back in 2005 in the Democratic Republic of Congo where she was in one of these multiple missions she's participated in, which I find you know, absolutely intractable and impossible missions. And she has spent over 25 years doing that. You know, Originally picked up by the UN, uh, where she had been doing work in Palestine. And um, uh, af after that, when I met her in the DRC, it was a time of an attempt to consolidate peace. We were three years into the peace agreement with warring factions of quite a vitriolic nature in the Eastern part of the country. And the person I went to to begin to learn about this conflict was Lise. Um, and I began to understand what a no-nonsense, talented person she was. Um, she has um, also, she went on to serve as humanitarian coordinator in the lead up to the independence of South Sudan, a very difficult project in itself, and was there in the preparatory period. And I think for a year after statehood uh, was declared um, a very fraught place as we can see today uh, still. Uh, she had previously served as deputy representative of the UN assistance mission in Iraq during the military campaign against ISIS. And from what I understand, she was in charge or played a very major role in one of the largest evacuations of a civilian population from a war zone that was ever taken, undertaken by the UN. Her last UN post before taking up the leadership of the US Institute for Peace, where she is now um, president and Chief Executive Officer, was as UN re uh, resident and humanitarian coordinator in Yemen, uh, one of the largest and most dangerous UN missions 
in history, and of course, a conflict that is ongoing uh, in the extreme. So over her career, she served in Armenia, Angola, East Timor, Palestine, Tajikistan, Sudan, and Haiti. And I know she had one small period of respite in India as UNDP resident coordinator, um, which must have been a period of rest or something, which it sounded like you would have needed many more of those type of periods and appointments, uh, Lise. So I'm really delighted to have you here to speak to our students after such an illustrious career, which goes on now from your, your very senior position in Washington. And as discussing tonight, we have our own Professor David Keane. I won't go on with such a long introduction, but he's a very also intrepid character who's written about conflict, who's written books on Sudan, uh, who um, recently, um, probably maybe most recently, David, I'm not sure, was doing uh, research among refugees from Syria. Um, he's written a book that seems to have uh, had an impact on lease called um, uh, Useful Extremes. Uh, David is- somebody uh, Useful who, Enemies. Useful yes. Enemies, I'm sorry. Yes. They, they were extreme, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and David has a, a raft of scholarship under his belt and is uh, one of the people who lectures on crisis, on, on um, um, uh, emergencies, um, complex emergencies at the LSE for the past, uh, gee, I think almost 20 years now. I won't say more. Um, so we'll start turning over with Lise Grand. Thank you very much, Lise, for coming to speak to us today. I'm delighted to be with all of you and want to thank Professor Puzzle James for inviting me for your very kind introduction and also express my respects for Professor King, who's joining our conversation uh, this afternoon. I'd like to do two things. First, I'd like to reflect on some of the key dynamics and factors that are likely to drive conflict in the next quarter century. And second, I'd like to look at the mechanisms and the tools that are currently being used to prevent, mitigate, and resolve conflict, and to share some candid observations about whether those tools are likely to be effective in the next quarter century as we address new drivers of conflict. If we start first with the drivers of conflict that are probably going to create, or we expect are likely to create the most conflict in the next 25 years, there are three that I would like to forefront. The first is the impact that rivalry between China, Russia, and the United States is likely to have in creating conflict as China and Russia seek to enhance their status as major powers alongside the United States, most experts expect to see a sharp rise in conflict in the regions and countries where these powers are attempting to expand their cultural, economic, military, and political influence. There is also the possibility, we all hope less likely, that conflict could erupt between several or all of these powers dragging the world into a catastrophic global war where the use of weapons of mass destruction is possible. 
A second key driver of global instability in the next quarter century is almost certainly going to be the spread of authoritarianism, the spread of new and existing extremist forces, and the threats that are posed by terrorist movements and criminal networks. The threats posed by these forces are particularly acute in fragile countries, Iraq, Afghanistan, Ethiopia, Sudan, and Libya, countries which lack institutional mechanisms for reducing violence, they lack mechanisms for addressing popular grievances, and the mechanisms that they have for managing tensions are under enormous stress. A third key driver of instability in the next quarter of century are almost certainly going to be the disruptive global shocks that are and will continue to occur because of climate change, because of resource scarcity, pandemics. Already we see this, 14 of the 25 countries that are most vulnerable to climate change are right now mired in conflict. Water scarcity alone has been the cause of 500 separate clashes and localized conflicts in just the past 13 years. And as many of us already know, we're projecting that within the next 30 years by mid-century, as many as 200 million people across the globe may be forced to migrate because of resource scarcity. We're also seeing new risks to global security as countries struggle to stop and recover from COVID-19 and as major and emerging powers exploit the new global inequities that are being created by the pandemic. There are other profound changes underway which have the potential to significantly impact the way that we address and try and solve these drivers. Let me share three of these changes. First, the propulsive proliferation of the risks to peace. Second, the stress on the world's existing peace institutions. And third, the shifts in the parameters of global cooperation, the norms upon which these institutions rest and are structured. It's a truism that the risks to global peace and security are proliferating. These risks come in multiple forms. There are two of which I'd like to forefront, the reality of global power and the disruptive impact of new technologies. For the first time in nearly a century, we're no longer in a unipolar or even a bipolar world where one or two countries exercise disproportionate influence and power. We're in a multipolar world with multiple centers of military, political, social, and economic power. Most experts believe that this diffusion of power is creating many more risks to global stability than when global power was concentrated. Leaders, parliaments, civil society, and the private sector are overwhelmed by the proliferation of risks. They're unable to prioritize and they're unable to concentrate resources on solving the most important of these, let alone most or all of them. We're also seeing a proliferation of risks that are linked to the disruptive impact of new digital and cyber technologies. These technologies are empowering individuals in unprecedented ways, but they are also being used to disrupt infrastructure, trade and commerce, 
They're being used to create new forms of authoritarian repression and new weapons of mass destruction. Very worryingly, many, if not most of these technologies are unregulated outside any framework of control. They are accessible to multiple non-state and hybrid actors. Many of these actors are malign and are using the technologies without sanction or restraint. The second important change that will impact how we address the drivers of conflict is the capacity of our existing global peace institutions to understand and mitigate and respond to the drivers. The multilateral institutions which have managed trade, protected refugees, resolved conflicts, and adjudicated justice since World War II were created at a different time to deal with different problems. It's not at all clear that these institutions can help to manage great power rivalry, that they can rein in authoritarian regimes, that they can degrade terrorist capabilities, diffuse economic shocks, control mass migration, help countries manage resource scarcity, or that these institutions can address the realities of a very unequal globe where two thirds of the world's most extreme poor live in settings characterized by fragility, conflict, and violence. To do what's now necessary, these institutions are either gonna to have to evolve or be replaced by new and different ones. The third change, structural change, that impacts our collective ability to address the drivers of conflict concerns the rules-based international, the normative order, which was established after World War II and which the great powers have been the stewards of and the custodians of for the past 80 years. Although this order has been key to the enormous global advances we've seen in prosperity and democracy, there are countries which wanna change the norms now governing international trade and commerce, governing migration, space exploration, arms control, and the planet's environmental resources. Efforts are underway to change, to dismantle certain of the existing norms and protections, and to pivot toward new norms, which we have to expect during the pivot will lead to much more international global instability. We know that the changing normative structure of global cooperation will impact how we address the drivers of conflict. What's not exactly clear though is how they will impact them and what we will do about that. That's a brief overview of some of the key drivers that we see driving conflict and how much harder it's gonna be for us to address these because of profound structural changes underway globally. But I'd now like to do, Professor Putzel, is to share with you a series of slides that summarize the way that peace building is currently done across the globe. These are the tools and mechanisms that we rely on. And just to recall for everyone, peace and security activities roughly fall currently into five categories. Of course, in practice, there's considerable fluidity between all five of these. The first category is conflict prevention. These are the initiatives that prevent tensions and disputes from escalating into violent conflict. The second category, of course, is peacemaking. These are the initiatives you undertake in the middle of a conflict that are designed to bring hostile parties to a negotiated agreement. 
course, there's peacekeeping. These are the initiatives that preserve peace when the fighting is stopped. Peace enforcement. These are the initiatives that are authorized by the UN Security Council to apply coercive measures to restore international peace and security. And then finally, of course, there's peace building. These are a whole group of initiatives that try to reduce the risk of either lapsing into conflict or relapsing into conflict by strengthening national capacities for conflict management. And now in the past two decades, there is an emphasis on laying the foundation for sustainable development. There are five types of engagement that run across those five categories. Much of the work that's done to resolve or prevent conflict in the world is diplomatic engagement. You look back on the past 75 years, it is a very notable track record. You look at the right hand side of the slide, you can see a summary of the main tools, peace building missions, special political missions, preventative deployments, arms control frames. Of course, there are 28 existing major frameworks in the globe right now. There are 12 major transboundary watershed agreements that have kept very unstable parts of the world stable. There are protection and migration conventions, enormous mediation efforts, good offices applied across the globe. Of course, there are UN ceasefires. The UN does interpose its forces as buffers between warring parties. There are formal contact groups, informal contact groups. We do have international criminal accountability mechanisms. The much underappreciated role of UN resolutions, sanctions, and expert panels. The statements that the Security Council and the General Assembly will make in setting expectations. A huge number of track one, one, five, two, and three dialogues and the national dialogues. If you look at the next slide, there's humanitarian engagement. It's grown exponentially since the end of the Cold War. It now accounts for the overwhelming majority of direct engagement with belligerents. In the context of war, the people who talk the most to the people who are armed are humanitarians. This on the left-hand slide is a summary of how they do that. There are negotiated access frameworks, there are compacts, ground rules, days of tranquility, access arrangements, mine action, confidence building measures. The initiatives aimed at getting state and non-state actors to adhere to their obligations under international humanitarian law, the assessments we do, the civil military cooperation, humanitarian advocacy. The next form of engagement is development engagement. This is where most of the money is. If you look at it, how much money is put into diplomatic engagement and you compare that to humanitarian engagement, the bulk of financing sits here. It's primarily focused on prevention and post-conflict recovery, but stabilization is a new and growing area. You can see on the right-hand side, the just wealth of activities, early warning systems, efforts to stabilize economies that are in trouble, 
concessional financing work that's done to speed the delivery of public goods, capacity building for the regional institutions and so forth. It also includes countering violent extremism, DDR, economic stimulation at the end of war, electoral assistance at the end of wars, security sector reform and transitional justice. And of course, it includes work we do to promote good governance and anti-corruption. If you look at the next area of engagement, this is with civil society. Much of this work is focused on community practice, on networking, on learning. It includes customary practice, customary adjudication, negotiation, and mediation. If you're on the front line in the war, and you want to mitigate violence, that's how it's done, that first bullet. Also includes local resource sharing agreements, adaptation strategies, the institutional networks that are formed and reinforced and strengthened, women's networks, youth networks, engagement with religious leaders, nonviolent action, and inclusive peace processes. And then finally, there is the role of the private sector, a very underconceptualized form of engagement in preventing wars, mitigating conflicts, and resolving them, most often ignored by professional peace-building entities. If you're on the ground, you ignore it at your peril. This includes accountability dispute mechanisms. For example, if a company wants to build a dam and local communities don't want that, one of the best ways of resolving that conflict are through these accountability dispute institutions and mechanisms that are being established. Socially responsible business practices are part of this, cause-related marketing, dialogues with belligerents. You know, an awful lot of the free movement of goods and people in the context of wars, it's actually the private sector that gets those goods moving and works out arrangements for people to move. They also are a source of capital and financing. It's very informal, often extremely rapid. As of course we know in many wars, one of the unexpected things that happens is that you have market penetration and market expansion, particularly into remote areas, most often by black marketeers. And then of course the patronage networks that the private sector has and will often use to protect communities and to try and resolve conflicts. And then finally, my last set of observations is about a question I was recently asked with a group of students here in the US that said, if there were five things that we could do that would have the biggest potential impact in the area of peace building and making and enforcement, what would they be? So here is my um, um, response to that question. Um, if we could back the French initiative to suspend the use of the veto in the UN Security Council when there are mass atrocities, this would almost certainly be the fastest way to advance that key doctrine on the responsibility to protect. This, of course, is where the international community says um, to a country, you're not protecting your civilians, so there is a shared responsibility to protect them and we will take action. Second thing to do, 
appoint women to at least 50% of all mediator and envoy roles. I know colleagues are aware about 2% of mediators around the world are women, official ones. Why would we do this? Because it's the fastest way to modernize the good offices role. Second thing would be to negotiate right away new agreements on or agreements on new weapon systems and to update existing ones. And the reason for this is because these frameworks are the foundation of the global security architecture. I think fourth, if we really want to have the impact in preventing conflicts and then preventing countries that come out of fighting from relapsing, we've got to rethink and overhaul security sector reform initiatives. If there's one area where we get it wrong almost every time it's here, current initiatives just aren't successful. And if you look at the 50% of countries that are back in war five years after the war has ended, this factor almost always appears. And then finally, I think it's pretty clear that it's urgently required for all of us to establish environmental arbitration mechanisms. This is one of the most promising ways of preventing resource conflicts, which are likely, as we shared at the beginning of our comments, to be one of the major drivers of conflict in the next quarter century. Just a, a final observation. Uh, James, when you and I were talking about this meeting, you said to me, could I please share some of my personal experiences? So this photograph is um, taken in Sana in Yemen. And this is outside the UN office. So when we would go to work every day. This is what it looked like. We were, of course, unarmed. So people who are building peace are often working in circumstances that are profoundly and deeply challenging. Professor, thank you for giving me the chance to share these first introductory reflections and observations with you. Professor Keene, I look forward to um, your conversation and to answering any questions from colleagues. Thank you. Um, thank you so much. Can, can can you hear me okay? Yeah. Um, I mean, really fascinating practical suggestions and such a comprehensive overview of the problem. And I'm really literally in awe, particularly as a, not a particularly intrepid person, despite James's uh, kind remarks of your incredible career. Um, I, I guess I, I would start in a way with this, you know, very compelling picture that you've painted of the proliferation of threats. Uh, the pandemic, obviously, global heating, uh, you're talking about a diffusion of power, uh, diffusion of technology, the, um, digital economy feeding into some of those uh, dangers, uh, global heating feeding into conflicts uh, and so on. And all of this I think is very uh, compelling and very alarming. Um, 
but I, I wonder whether we aren't at risk of um, being in the kind of a mentality that's got us into a lot of trouble already. Uh, and by that, I mean that, uh, you know, particularly perhaps in, in Washington, but also in London and many other places, it's, it's easy to look out at the world and see a very threatening place. You know, and this has a long history, as you, uh, you know, as we're all very much aware. And one could think about um, the fear of communism and how that fed into uh, a series of responses that were really uh, productive of humanitarian disasters, you know, on a massive scale, or the um, fear of drugs and crime, this kind of worldwide war on drugs, the war on terror is something that uh, preoccupies me a lot, as I know it, it does you. Um, I do feel that looking back over the last 20 years, the war on terror, which was in a way generated from this sense of threat for very obvious reasons in terms of 9-11, uh, produced a set of responses which uh, in some ways were worse than the threat that was being highlighted in terms of the human destruction, uh, but also the impunity that was generated for a whole range of governments and actors associated with those governments, um, as, as you'll know as well from your own experience, uh, who in a way signed up to the elimination of this threat, which everybody agreed was sort of the ultimate source of evil, but actually in the process of doing so had their own agendas, were creating an awful lot of violence, uh, massacring civilians in Sri Lanka, um, the abuses by uh, Iranian-backed militias, in Iraq in terms of the, uh, the war against ISIS that I know you, you know a lot about. Um, the uh, Assad government in, in Syria getting a degree of impunity in a way from pointing to ISIS as the ultimate enemy and indeed encouraging ISIS in many ways behind the, behind the scenes. These are very disturbing, perverse incentives set up by uh, the war on terror. They had their equivalents when it was a war on communism. And I'm sure that as these conflicts evolve in the future, you know, we may well find that, for example, eco-terrorism is becoming more uh, common. Uh, I've been reading Andreas Mom's book, you know, how to blow up a pipeline, where he wonders why there isn't more eco-terrorism, even to the extent that Extinction Rebellion and other groups are trying to get people to wake up to global heating and using forms of direct action. Uh, they have been labeled as terrorists. Uh, by the United Kingdom police, or at least bracketed with terrorism. Uh, so it's interesting that some of the people who are, as we were, trying to wake up to the way that our disasters are heading, uh, 
and draw attention, for example, to the abuse of migrants, letting people die in the Mediterranean, uh, returning them to be tortured in Libya and so on. Uh, some of these NGOs are themselves being in a way labeled as part of the problem. And it comes in a way, and to my point of view, from a certain security perspective, where it becomes actually difficult to speak out uh, against those processes, because you may be, as it were, incorporated into the enemy category yourself through a certain kind of discourse. And, you know, it was most explicit with President Bush when he said, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists. Uh, so this is quite a dangerous environment. And to me, uh, the, the kind of highlighting of security threats carries this danger of casting, as it were, a veil of impunity over the various responses to those security threats. And I think that you mentioned a drift to authoritarianism. There, are, there is a sense in which there's a drift to authoritarianism, for example, within the United States. Now, that is feeding off a certain sense of threat around uh, mass migration, around uh, terrorism, and around a range of other issues. And I think there's a sense in which, uh, you know, this proliferation of disasters and overlapping disasters feeding into each other now that we have, there is a risk that that's going to fuel more and more a kind of a threat-based politics that's being instrumentalized by right-wing populists in particular, and will take us actually further and further from the international cooperation and from a concern with the truth and with evidence uh, that we need if we're going to actually tackle all these very difficult problems. So that kind of leads me on to a second point, which is, um, you know, in these different crises, there are certain things that are in a way extremely uncomfortable to say. And a lot of times people who are working for NGOs, they might uh, want to say them, but feel afraid of being killed or being kicked out of the country. Uh, similarly, in the UN organizations, uh, sometimes I think the UN agencies have more power to, to, to speak up, but they also have you know, very particular constraints with which you'll be extremely familiar. Um, and I wondered if you could maybe even tell us more from your own experience about some of these issues that were in a way very difficult to address and how one actually goes about putting them on the agenda, practically speaking, uh, you know, given all the constraints that often that often apply. Uh, in my own research, you know, my more sort of detailed research about Sudan uh, in the late 80s particularly, and then Sierra Leone, the war in the 90s, I found that the United Nations agencies were generally pretty poor in uh, telling the world what was going on, especially when it came to government sponsored or government perpetrated abuses. And there are a number of reasons for this. I think it's a pattern that persists to quite a large extent, as we saw in Sri Lanka in 2009, and uh, we're seeing it to a certain extent in Ethiopia now, for example. Um, but 
from a practical point of view, how do you actually say the unsayable and get the uncomfortable onto the agenda? And, you know, I'm just, I've written here what might be some relatively unsayable things. Uh, all the aid to Palestine is not going to help too much if Israel is able to exert a lot of violence of various kinds against the Palestinians. Uh, the war on ISIS in Iraq um, came at a huge cost to civilians, which you will know probably better than anyone, uh, including abuses by militias that were lining up against uh, ISIS. Another one, humanitarian aid to Yemen is not going to fix the problem if major allies of the Saudis and sellers of arms, uh, such as the United States and United Kingdom, uh, don't denounce the instrumentalization of suffering uh, by the Saudi regime. In terms of DRC, um, I think, you know, historically aid to the DRC was not going to fix the conflict if Rwanda, for example, and Uganda were allowed to stir it up behind the scenes and they were seen as, uh, you know, the poster boys to some extent of the, of the Western powers. South Sudan, which you know well, um, in a sense that government very quickly acquired many of the habits of the cartoon government that it was uh, growing up in opposition to. Uh, and in terms of the, you know, this war on terror uh, against ISIS, the Al-Qaeda family tree and other organizations like the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka, um, you know, I come back to the enormous impunity for all the uh, range of people signing up to those wars on terror. The fact that corruption is often so much uh, worse within the, the states and the counterinsurgencies that are trying to defeat this problem than it actually is within those prescribed rebel organizations. Um, and you know, there's a lot of violence that goes largely unremarked upon. So I'm just wondering if you could sort of tell us more about, uh, it's almost an impossible question, like how do you speak about the unsayable? But you obviously have a huge experience of those highly controversial issues. How long have I been talking, James? 10 minutes. <laughs> okay, well, I'll... I'll uh, I'll, I'll stop. I just, I mean, maybe 20 more seconds. Sure. Uh, there's a dilemma in peacemaking between uh, having the kind of peace that's inclusive of all the parties that have been waging war. And you try to, as it were, lure them into the peacemaking process through offering them benefits, perhaps through offering them some degree of amnesty, uh, through incorporating as many of them as possible into the political settlement. That, I think, has the advantage that you're not driving people back to war. You know, you're giving an incentive for peace, but it's also sending a horrible signal, as you know, as far as the benefits of violence are concerned. So it's in, in a way, it's pragmatic, but it's sending a horrible signal when it comes to impunity. How do you, in terms of your practical experience of so many different uh, um, insecure environments, 
see that kind of trade-off between uh, e exclusion, uh, between sending out the right signal and then being pragmatic and getting people on board with your peace process and not driving them into violence. You know, there's such an extreme example in Rwanda, but, you know, the Hutu extremists were not taken on board in the peace process and they were not having it. Uh, and, the, you know, there are plenty of other examples of people being excluded and going going to, to war or worse. So I'll stop there. Um, but uh, fascinating talk and, and thank you. David, thank you. You raised some very difficult and challenging uh, uh, questions and comments as usual. And I would debate some of them with you, but it's not my place to do so. Lise, would you like to have an initial response to David? So Lise. Um, David, thank you. And you know, I, as I was listening to your comments, I, you know, it, it it emphasizes a point that all of us uh, who uh, dare to tread in this domain know that we are in very perilous waters, whether we're trying to prevent or mitigate or resolve a conflict. I think that that um, you know when, when you're actually right in the middle of it and you're trying to do the right thing. You know, it, it really is about um, what is possible, what is possible at this moment, at this time, with these constraints, um, what can be done. And here, you know, I, I structured some of my first reflections bearing that very much in mind. So what is possible when the institutions which have to concentrate resources and assets and be applied in a way which can create leverage and change? What happens when those institutes, institutions don't work, when they're overwhelmed? That's a question to be posed. It's a very urgent question because it's not the same question that was posed 15 years ago, let alone during the middle of the Cold War, but it's a question we're facing now. Secondly, what are the norms, the rules of the game for how conflicts are managed? Those rules are changing. Right? That normative understanding about what kinds of conflicts were allowed or not allowed, the use of mass weapons of mass destruction, the framework and the architecture and the norms underlying that are pivoting and evolving. So what's possible to do as a peacemaker is very fundamentally different now than it was even two years ago. The capacity of leadership to make decisions about how they will use the assets at their disposal to try and change the course of events is very much shaped by the political room that they have how they get to decide questions, whether they're allowed to by their political allies, by civil society, by the sequencing of the electoral cycle. These are questions which um, relate to the politics of the moment that we find ourselves in, the norms, the institutions, and the political space. You are right to point out that in every act we take, there will be intended consequences and unintended consequences. And those unintended consequences will produce more problems that will demand our attention and our action. Should we 
as a corollary of that insight, step back from doing what is possible? Of course, that's a moral question that each of us have to answer. I think that when people talk about this moment, uh, the current Secretary General refers to it as an inflection point. What he's really saying is the normative order, everybody, it's pivoting. This will impact the rules of conflict globally. Everybody, the institutions which we have relied on for a very long period of time to manage conflicts, to manage the use of first strike nuclear capabilities, right? That those institutions and those frameworks are under pressure. And he is also pointing to the way in which the diffusion of power is limiting the ability of the stewards of global stability to do their work. So that it's not that you've got people waving, as we would say in Kansas, a bloody shirt, what they did in the Civil War, to get people excited or to overstate a cause or to incite panic. It's to take a step back, say, we're at an inflection point, what does it look like? More importantly, it's to say, what can be done about that so that we limit destruction, prevent it where we can, and mitigate violence however we must. Now, you know, is this an inflection point that is of a worse nature or more frightening than the inflection point that we faced at the end of World War II? You betcha it is. At the end of World War II, there was a clear concentration of power. So if you wanted stability, you had to get basically two countries to agree on a framework. You can't do that anymore. If you want to prevent the use of first and second strike nuclear weapons, it's a very different proposition at doing those with conditions of today than before. We don't want to lose that historical reality. We don't want to lose that sharpness of perspective. You raised a very interesting point about um, how you capture the attention of the right people at the right time to move the dial. Very complex issue, obviously multidimensional. So you can have, for example, very often happens in the United Nations, you will have various organs of the UN that are seized with the issue that appears once or twice in the international press, if at all. So the question then becomes, if you're trying to, for example, promote new agreements on navigation in the oceans, right? Is it simply a question of getting the world's international media to focus on that? Is it a question of getting the organs which deal with that and the countries which control and shape those organs to deal with it? You know, my long experience in some pretty awful places in the world, there were times when you wanted every major news media in the world to talk about the issue every single day. And then there were times when what you really wanted were 
four crucial votes on the Security Council to be so overwhelmed with letters, right, to their White House or to 10 Downing Street that they took action. Then there were times when you were dealing with a matter that required consistent global attention across all the countries of the world. And you would approach that knowing that that's what you were trying to do. So I think many of us working in this environment, you know, we become, um, um, we become quite focused on what is, um, who does, where does the message need to land and how are we gonna get there the fastest? And this goes to the point that you're raising about the use of denunciation, the use of truth telling, um, and whether or not that is a requirement for people who are in these situations. I think you were implying that it was a requirement. And then how that's done in a way which has impact. Those are not always the same two questions. Your very interesting point, Professor, about the um, dynamics between inclusivity and the messy business of getting folks with guns to stop fighting. So I think a lot of us in the field sort of would, would understand that there are situations where getting the fighting done requires that there be a lot of people at a peace table. So the national dialogue, the discussion about the new dispensation was in fact coterminous with the cessation of hostilities. Those discussions happen at the same time. There are, of course, other situations where that doesn't happen, where you get the belligerents to stop fighting and then the inclusive national dialogue process takes place outside of fighting. As, you know, if you're trying to do a national dialogue when there is actually fighting going on, it's obvious that the contours and the shape of that national dialogue will be shaped primarily by the fighting itself. And this is why very often you see a sequencing. So there's the agreement to end hostilities, sequence then with a process that is inclusive, that focuses on the new dispensation for the country, which the people of that country will have to decide for themselves. So I think it's not so much a dilemma between them, if I may, although I, I recognize the points you're making, but very often the practical way of addressing that question is to look at the sequencing of it and what makes the most sense. Um, those are just some of the, the first observations. Thanks, Lise. So Thanks. on that note, um, Lise and David, I hope you can join, um, hang on for a bit, but we want to say goodbye to our audience. Thank you for participating. And thank you, Lise, for coming with your vast experience. Um, and, and, and next time we'll ask you about your earlier studies at Stanford and the New School. Uh, it's an amazing career that you've had so far, and you have a quite a bully pup, pulpit in Washington now, uh, which I hope you can use to, to, to great effect. And David, as always, thank you for honest, direct, and challenging questions and contributions. So until next week, thanks, everybody. Thanks for tuning into this lecture recording from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development Thinking and Practice series for 2021-2022. To hear more, don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch any of these lectures back on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for International Development LSE.
Stay informed about upcoming events, including the next Cutting Edge Lectures, by searching for events on the LSE Department of International Development website, or just follow us on Twitter at LSE underscore ID for the latest updates.